Hey. Welcome to the fifth lesson of <coughs> Warrior to Warrior. Over the past four weeks, we've discussed a range of emotional benefits that when we adopt a divine soul mindset, by following our divine soul, we are then able to have a whole paradigm shift in how we view things. This way, we continue to shed negative emotions, as we know negative emotions is what deflates our energy, doesn't allow us to be really who we are, and it also allows negative emotions to constantly boggle us, and by invoking or having this mindset of the divine soul, we spoke about we get rid of the negative emotions like inauthenticity, inadequacy, flawed, guilt, stressed by hardships of pain, overwhelmed by and stressed by hardships. And today, and for today and next week's class, we're going to shift gears and talk about positive emotions. Meaning, now that we know how to get rid of and shed the negative emotions, how do we then work on instilling and creating and infusing our life with enthusiasm, gratitude, joy, love, optimism, serenity, etc. And just on the, just to start with just a little bit of a um, idea of where we're going with this is, this week we're going to talk about mainly, though we will have some pragmatics, this week is going to be mainly theory, next week is going to be implementation. So just to give you what we're going to talk about, the positive emotions. Just to get started, to help us understand when we talk about we want to create positive emotions within ourselves, we need to know where we are right now. You know, whenever you go to an uh, amusement park or you're in a train station, whatever, you're looking for how to get someplace, and you're looking at a map, what's the first thing you need to find? The bathroom. Because you are here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Besides, but, but first you need to know if you want to get to the bathroom. You first need to know where you are. Once you know where you are, you then you can find what destination you want to go to. So if we want to be happy and we want to be positive, we need to know if we are happy and if we're not happy. So exercise 5.1, we'll go through it quickly. You can actually you should do it on your own. We'll indicate the degree of which you agree or disagree. This is on page 182 with the following statements. After each statement, enter a number in the blank according to the following statement. Okay? So if everybody can just fill out these numbers... It's exercise 5.1 on page 182. We'll give you a few minutes to fill, fill it out. There's no right or wrong answer. Don't take it too personal. Don't take it too personal. If you find some of the questions difficult, just give the answer that is most true to you most of the time. You will see some of the statements are here are phrased positive, some are phrased negative. And... And you can see at the end, it tells you how to calculate your score. 
the ones with an R next to it, when you get to the end, you'll see oh, your calculator see. reverse. But once you get to the end, that's where you'll calculate it. Once you have your total score, I'll tell you if you're positive or negative. Mm. Starting on page 182. The exercise, the first exercise on 182. Calculation yet? No? Oh, we have to do these. Yeah, yeah all 29. And then the ones here. with an R, as you can see, you do reverse the score. One is six, two is five. Three and then is four. are you supposed to add up these numbers? Correct. Uh -huh. And then the ones with an R next to it, the numbers will be reversed. So, for example, one, if you put a one, mm -hmm. It's going to be a six. If you put a two, it's going to be a five. If you put a three, it's going to be a four. If oh you put my. a four, it's going to be a three. Okay, I do a not understand that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'll just tell you mm. what usually the implication of your score is, and then you can calculate it later. Okay. One to two is not happy. Two to three is somewhat happy. Three to four is not particularly happy or unhappy. Four is somewhat happy, moderate, happy, satisfied. Four to five is rather happy. Five to six is very happy. 
So later on, after you okay. take your numbers and you divide it by 29, I think it is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your happiness score going from two, uh, the total, taking your happiness score, the total, from one through six, one is on your lower range and six will be your higher range. Well, let's move on. Okay. okay. Now that we determined how happy we are, or not yet, or perhaps aren't happy, the obvious question would be, what would it take to make you happy? What would it take to make you happy? So anybody here, feel free to throw out an answer. You would be happier if what? Good health. You would have good health. Anybody else? Um, fun time. Yeah, fun time, okay. <laughs> yeah, fun time. Anybody else? If I know my children are happy. If you know your children are happy. Mm. Okay. Anybody else? Let's take one more. You'd be happier if... Come on. Nobody wants to be happier? Good health. Good health. We're looking for another one. All people want good health. Huh? <laughs> you can go to Israel. Okay. Moshiach. Okay. Well. So we know you'd be happier if... And what's the reason why we don't have that happiness? is because there are certain impediments to those happiness. Sometimes, many issues that we discussed in previous lessons don't allow us for being happy. Sometimes we're not happy because we're anxious, we feel guilty. If, let's say, um, you want to go to Israel, but you feel guilty leaving somebody behind, if you feel guilty spending the money, who knows what, right? Either way, but a lot of times... You try to be happy despite the negative emotions. Despite the anxiety, the guilt, the issues that may come up with it, you still say, you know what, I'm going to be happy anyway. And what happens is, we start feeling like we're pulling the, pushing the gas pedal in our little sedan and trying to pull a tractor trailer at the same time behind it. And we're going nowhere. And in fact, we're getting pulled back. But during the past few weeks, we've discussed and hopefully resolved some of those negative emotions. And therefore, we've looked to get rid of guilt, sadness, and so on, and we've eliminated many negative emotions. But what happens if I eliminate all those negative emotions, so I got rid of that tractor-trailer that's hooked up to my sedan, but why am I still not happy? How come I still don't have that level of happiness if I've gotten rid of those negative emotions? And sometimes we're not happy, and we are still not happy, and we don't even know why we're not happy. We just don't feel energetic. We feel lethargic, apathetic. And if we're unhappy, the question is, why are we not happy? I don't have the anxiety. I don't have the guilt. I've been working on shedding those negative emotions. But for some reason, I'm not getting those positive emotions. So, as we discussed previously, contending with the negative emotions, we spoke about, before we answer the question, let's go back and reflect on the general theme that we spoke about until now. And the general theme that we spoke about was that when we reflect on the divine soul, when we focus on the divine soul, when we make it our mission to only align ourselves with the divine soul, we then have the ability to move away from those negative emotions, and we spoke about the difference between the natural soul versus the animal soul. While the natural soul attempts to solve negative emotions by reducing the cause of the negative emotion, 
The divine soul shifts the perspective entirely where the problems become irrelevant. So let's take the concept. The natural soul approach is reduces the impediments to happiness while the divine soul renders those impediments irrelevant. Let's take, for example, if you have in figure 5.1 on page 185, you have the concept of, for example, the negative emotion of authenticity, inauthenticity. The natural soul says, be more authentic. The divine soul says, understand that every good thing is 100% good and 100% authentic. That's not an impediment anymore. The same goes for shame and inadequacy. The natural soul will address or fix the character flaws, while the divine soul understands that the character flaws are a gift, the struggles are against, a struggles against them as part of our life purpose. Same idea with guilt. The natural soul will say to forgive yourself and move on, while the natural says, experience a controlled guilt in a proper time. The negative emotion of an anxiety, worry, and sadness the natural soul will say, manage the feelings, put it in its appropriate place. And the divine soul, as we discussed last week, teaches us to know that the non-revealed good is actually a greater good that we just don't understand. The same is also when it comes to happiness. Happiness has a different paradigm when you're looking at it from a natural soul approach and when you're looking at it from a divine soul approach. The natural soul approach will continuously try to eliminate and say, okay, why am I not happy? Because I need good health? Okay, so go to the doctor, take your vitamins, and I'll try to create that good health. The, uh, the, um, the, the divine soul doesn't even look at the impediment to begin with. Now, what does that mean? And the question that you may ask is, since when does the divine soul have to do with happiness? Ever since when did we discuss even that the divine soul has happiness? Isn't the divine soul something which is used for spirituality? Let me ask you a question. Anybody ever been to synagogue on Purim? Mm -hmm. What is that time? Happiness, right? That doesn't look to you. You walk out out of a Purim celebration saying, Oh, I feel spiritually uplifted. My divine soul has been so touched. What about Yom Kippur? Did you feel spiritually uplifted after Yom Kippur? But you didn't walk out saying this was a happy occasion. Seemingly, happiness and spirituality or divinely inspired spirituality by the divine soul seemingly doesn't necessarily equate. Take, for example, a wedding ceremony. You go to the wedding ceremony, it's solemn, serious. That's where you feel, so to speak, the spirituality, the holiness. You go into the wedding hall and there's dancing and singing. Yes, it's enjoyable. That's happy. But that doesn't look like the divine soul. Or does it? So we usually associate sacredness, holiness, with moments of somberness, sobriety, and not necessarily enjoyable. And enjoyable moments are usually deferred to times where the natural soul enjoys Happy moments, it doesn't have to be for something negative, but a happy moment seemingly seems like something that the natural soul would be something that it enjoys and something that it likes. So what is the function of the divine soul? Is the the function of the divine soul a happy occasion, happiness, or is it natural? Or is it the natural soul? So here's a cute little video that helps us understand a little bit 
if the divine soul being happy is that counterintuitive or is that part of the divine soul? Rabbi Yisrael Bel Shemtov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, taught that God wants us to serve him lovingly and with joy. Sadness and melancholy must be replaced with constant trust, love, and confidence in God's benevolent providence. On one of his many travels, the Baal Shem Tov once arrived at a city shortly before the high holidays. He questioned the locals, Tell me, please, who leads the services during the holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Why, our city's rabbi, they replied. And tell me, the sage continued, what is his service like? Sincere, heartfelt, and with concentration, came the predictable replies. But there's one thing he does differently, one man said. It's on Yom Kippur. Most rabbis recite the lengthy confessions with painful remorse, quivering voices, and a few sobs. But our rabbi sings his way through the confessions most joyfully. Baal Shem Tov asked the kind of folk to summon their rabbi. Is it true that you sing the Yom Kippur confessions with great joy? He inquired. The rabbi nodded eagerly. Please explain this unfamiliar practice. Certainly, responded the rabbi. Imagine a servant who has been ordered to maintain the king's busy palace courtyard. He must clear the gutters, remove the waste buckets, collect the horse's manure, sweet, tidy, and smooth. The servant loves the king with every fiber of his being. He considers it the greatest privilege to serve him. As he removes the filth and waste, washing, sweeping, schlepping and disposing, he hums a cheerful tune. He is the happiest man in the world, for the king will soon descend the palace steps and be very pleased at the sight of his spotless and sanitary yard. On Yom Kippur, I am that servant. It is my great privilege to assist my brethren in removing their spiritual waste and unsanitary deeds through the Yom Kippur Confessions. How can I not sing as I sleep? The face of the Baal Shem Tov shone with delight. If that is your intention, he responded, you may continue your praiseworthy practice. we see from here that <clears throat> although it may seem counterintuitive, but that's the reality. As we will see as the lesson unfolds that the divine soul is the key to happiness. But before we discuss how the divine soul is the key to happiness, let us first talk about the problems or explore the ways that the natural soul looks for happiness. So let's look and we have an exercise 5.3 if anybody would like to describe three ways in which the natural soul achieves happiness and positive emotion. That means what would the natural soul look for happiness? Anybody? Feel free to share. Children laughing, people happy. Children laughing, people happy. Something more materialistic. Celebrations. Celebrations. Listen to music. Listen to music, or even something more materialistic. Buy earn things. more money, buy, buy things, things, and have things. Right? Yeah. So while it would seem that 
seemingly these methods should work. But in reality, we're going to see that the divine, that I'm sorry, the natural soul's solutions to happiness don't work very well. Certainly not in the long term, as we can see in the following reading. Text number one, page 187. People briefly react to good and bad events, but in a brief time they return to neutrality. Thus happiness and unhappiness are merely short-lived reactions to changes in people's circumstances. People continue to pursue happiness because they incorrectly believe that greater happiness lies just because they incorrect... I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. happiness lies just around the next corner and the next goal accomplished, the next social relationship obtained, the next problem solved. Because new goals continually capture one's attention. One constantly strives to be happy without realizing that in the long run, such efforts are futile. Mm -hmm. So as you see, the psychologist says very clearly, the, 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 the natural soul's quest for happiness is basically doomed for failure. Why is this? And we're now going to talk about two reasons why the natural soul's quest for happiness is doomed to fail. So number one, the natural soul's approach to happiness is unsuccessful. And we'll talk about why. If I live in a natural soul lifestyle, which we know from the previous lessons, means that I'm devoting to make my life more comfortable, more pleasurable, because that's what the natural soul is interested in, in the selfishness of the individual, and gratifying, I can never truly be happy. Why is that? And let's see a little bit of insight that will help us understand it. Text number two. When a plant is fully provided with all that it requires for growth, earth, water, air, it is liberated from all its worries and concerns, so to speak. Although it is immobile, doomed to remain rooted in a place for its entire lifespan, it nevertheless enjoys the full freedom that a plant can experience. As long as it remains no more than a plant, it is truly free, despite its lack of mobility. An animal, however, is a different story. Even if it needs food and drink were to to be provided, it would feel horribly restricted and imprisoned to the harshest manners if it were to be immobilized and forced to forever remain in one place for it would be denied one of the primary features of its existence. The primary feature of the human being is intelligence. Humans would feel imprisoned even if granted full freedom of mobility if they were denied the primary aspect of being, the freedom to utilize their intelligence and live mindfully. What the Rebbe is saying over here is an interesting thing. Over here he tells us a concept to apply within the human being, but within every scope, if we go from level to level. You have inanimate objects. You have a rock. What does a rock want to be? Just leave me alone. Let me, don't disturb my earth around me. It's not looking to grow. It's not looking to impede. It's not looking to move. That's what a rock's liberty is. That's the way a rock lives life to its fullest. Vegetation is not looking to move. It wants to just grow. It's not looking to be someplace else. It wants to grow straight tree. The animal, should you give the animal all its food, but chain the animal to a tree, the animal will be jumping forward, won't be able to stay in one place. Why? Because you're denying its liberty, which is the whole concept of the animal, as though it has everything, but it can't grow. The same is with the human being. What is the advantage of the human being that we have intelligence? If I give you all the mobility you want, all the food you want, but I don't allow you to use your intelligence, I stifle your intelligence... You become robotic, there's no use. 
Take, for example, you give a child a 20-piece puzzle to do. The child feels great, satisfied, happy. Look, I was able to do the puzzle. Go give that puzzle to an adult. The adult will look at you, what, are you crazy? You're embarrassing me? 20-piece puzzle? An adult needs a 2,000-piece puzzle. Similarly, our intellectual abilities were applied that we should be able to use them, and when they are not used, we become frustrated they are not used, being used to its fullest. Why? Because we are denying our humanity its fullest extent of what it can do. It's like you're denying, it's like taking a person and you're taking a self-imposed figurative prison into the individual. You're locking yourself into a box. You're confining yourself to a certain restraint. The human being has higher needs to satisfy their intellectual and physical pleasures. Compare those higher needs to the mundane enjoyments and whatever it may be. Now, because the human being, by definition, is an intellectual, what makes the human being different than an animal vegetation and inanimate objects is because it has an intellectual stimulation. It wants more. It has choices. It speaks. It does things. So just by having another object is not going to make that person happy. It's not going to be satisfying because you're still denying it from its higher need. It's still going to impede your happiness. Because as long as the human being does not have what it needs to be stimulated, to feel human, it's not going to be happy. Meaning, an important part of me, and perhaps the most defining part of me, will be withheld and restricted, and therefore I can't feel good about myself. If I don't feel that I have the ability to do who I am, to be who I am, think what I could, and I feel stifled, will I be happy? Absolutely not. And therefore, the anxiousness, the moodiness, even if I can't pinpoint it and say it's because of this, ultimately that's what it is. Because look, take it a step further, text number three. Wild beasts and animals are always happy. You never saw a sad dog? Because their spiritual life force is compatible with their bodies to a degree neither greater nor less than how they are created. Not so humans, regarding whom it states, how many understand that the sacred spirit of the human being soars higher, while the spirit of the beast within the human descends lower. The incompatible desires create the possibility that the unique human spirit will find itself suffering incarceration within the corporal body that drags the person lower. Anybody ever hear the expression, the hedonic treadmill? The hedonic treadmill talks about a feeling of emptiness, that as many luxuries in life you try to attain, it's called hedonic, like hedonism, Mm. you try to get, it's still a treadmill. You're running again and again and again, and it's not getting you anywhere. There was a Hollywood actor, his name was Jim Carrey. Anybody heard of him? Yeah. He once threw, he was a comedian, I think, right? He was worth $150 million. He said the following statement. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. He chased his dreams. He had his bucket list. He had what he wants to attain, whatever it was going to be in all the different things. And guess what? He got there, and he still needed more. 
You ever hear a guy say, okay, I made a million, okay, I'm going to retire now? No. They need another million. No. I have one car? No, I need another car. You have 40 cars, sports cars, sitting in a garage. Why are you buying another Maserati? Why not? <laughs> maybe I'll find happy because I can. Maybe that will give me... Maybe it's the 41st car that's going to give me the happiness, but then they tried it and that doesn't happen as well. <coughs> so all these goals fail to maximize. Now, I'm putting it at an extreme level, but we all have it in our own levels. Whether it's another pair of shoes or it's another dress or it's another car, another show, whatever it is. Another bowl of ice cream. Either way. So all of it is true when it comes concerning the natural soul. And as we explained, the natural soul has higher aspirations for food, money, fame, and everything else. But because it has intelligence, which is complex, it needs to express and it looks for ways to maximize it. The problem is, because it's only following the natural soul, it'll never be satisfying. That extra bowl of ice cream, that extra car, that extra dress, that extra shoes makes no difference to the intellect of the human being. It may feel good in the emotion for the natural soul for the time being, but once that passes, it's going to be gone. Let's even take it a step further. Even if the natural soul intellectually understands why it will make them happy, meaning, even if the natural soul intellectually says, you know what, there's a certain spiritual potential that I can find in it. Because in every entity, there's something spiritual that I can express, I can find, I can believe in. But what's happening? As long as it's for the natural soul, for the selfish reason of an emotional state, it will not change. It might endure a little longer, but you will not become happy from it. So to summarize it, what we have over here is... Uh, correct. We'll never, happiness contingent upon full self-expression... The problem is expression of intellectual and spiritual aspects of the natural soul and or expression of the divine soul. What we find over here is that a positive emotion and happiness is dependent and contingent on a full expression. A full expression of the intellectual soul because that's what makes us human and a full expression of the spiritual soul because that's what makes us human that we have both souls. We have the natural and the divine. And if I am suffocating one of them, I will never have that level of happiness. So even if I were to be preoccupied with spiritual needs, but those spiritual needs are for a self-centered reason, that is because I want to become a big rabbi, I want to show how holy I am. Again, what I do, I still denied my divine soul from self-expression, so therefore I won't be happy. That means we need to look at ourselves as a duality of a divine soul, of a natural soul. And as long as I'm not feeding both, I'll never be happy. And as long as it's self-centered, then I am not feeding the divine soul. And if I'm not feeding the divine soul, I will continue to struggle to have this happiness. So what do I do? But there's another reason why the natural soul is not happy. That prevents the natural soul lifestyle from being happy. But before we go there, let's take a moment and try to answer some of the questions in exercise 5.4. Hmm. This one should be a little easier. Hmm. 
three things, and feel free to call out, feel, uh, three things that you know in your life at one point brought you some happiness. Birth of your children. Birth of your children, okay. Graduating college. Graduating college. Anybody else? First job? Music. Music, okay. So over here we have three things that you all said made you happy at one point. Let me ask you something. Do they still make you happy? Yes. Okay, somebody said children. <laughs> when your children are born, everything's beautiful, right? But all of a sudden they get older. <laughs> <laughs> Not always they make things change. The problem yeah. start. Right? <laughs> Let's say music made you happy. Why doesn't it continue to make you happy? It you can't play anymore? Happy. It makes me But you're not playing all the time. No. Okay. So it's not something that's constant. Yes. If you were be able to play music constantly, then maybe it would make you happy, right? So the problem is you can't have it all the time. Right. Okay? Right. Graduating college. Let's take that example. Why are you no longer happy? It does make me happy. So you're I happy because you once graduated college? I accomplished something, and with that accomplishment, I'm able so to right now you're earn happy a living. Earn a living. So it that changed. Your mind. So it's not the graduating college. There are many people that graduate college and don't earn a living. It's what I benefit from it. But right now, that happiness is not from the graduating college. It's from the perks that came because of it. Hmm. Okay? So not always is that happiness, especially if it comes from the natural soul. What changed? So let's see. There's an interesting thing. In other words, once two old friends met each other. And he sees the other guy is like melancholy, is down. So he asks him, what's the matter? He says, listen, let me tell you. Three weeks ago, my uncle died and he left me $40,000. Cash, no worries. Two weeks ago, I had an aunt that I never knew about left me. $100,000 clean, no problem. <laughs> says, I, and then he says, last week, <clears throat> I had another aunt. She left me another $500,000. His friend looks at him and he says, I don't understand, so what are you so upset about? He says, this week, nothing. <laughs> what happens, we get so used to things, as it says, in the, it says in the Medrash, no one leaves this world with, with even half of their cravings fulfilled. Rather, one has 100 coins, longs to turn it into 200, one has two... 100 longs to turn into 400. We explained before that a person with the complex intelligence that an individual has and the divine soul that we have cannot be happy unless both of them are expressed. Why? Because as long as you're only acting upon your natural soul, your divine soul is being suppressed. But now we're taking it even a step further. The natural soul, the natural soul the nature of it is that it constantly wants more. There's no such thing, I'm happy. The natural soul by definition says, more. I have 200, I want 400. Why? Because the natural soul is not only that it's not a vehicle for happiness, it sabotages your happiness. The natural soul is what destroys the happiness of a person. Because the more it has, the more it wants. Before we explain that the problem with the cravings and the desires of the natural soul is because it's, not, because it's suffocating the divine soul as well. 
Over here, we're taking it even a step further. The natural soul, as long as it's only focused on its attainments, it's self-sabotaging. Because I got something, now I want more. I have one, I want a better one. My child's the vice president, I want him to be the president. I got 200, I want 400. I want this, I want more. Never, it's a self-oriented. Because it's self-oriented, it's the greatest impediment to happiness. Because you'll never be happy, because you constantly want more than you already have. How can you be happy then? In simple words, I met the enemy, and he is me. Why? What's the reason why I'm having such a hard time being happy? Is because I'm searching it the wrong way. The greatest impediment to happiness from the natural soul is, so to speak, happiness itself. People say, I'm going to be happy if I just buy these shoes for myself. They'll make me so happy. And after they buy the shoes, they wear it twice, the feet are hurting. And then they say, okay, I'm not happy anymore. <laughs> I, if, if I feel better, I'll buy, I bought myself this car because I want to be happy. I feel down, I was depressed, I decided to go get this tub of ice cream. And then we finish it. And what happens? We're back to stage one. So happiness from the natural soul is the greatest impediment to happiness. Because the more I give it, the more it wants. And that's why if we look in text number three, we read about animals are always happy, while humans are not. Why are animals happy? Because they have what they need. They don't look for more. They ate lunch, they're happy. They're not looking for snack, dessert afterwards. Text number five. Page 193. One who's consumed with self-focus is more miserable For the more important a person considers himself, the more misery he experiences as his preoccupation with the lowly matters. You ever notice a guy that considers himself this big, fancy, and special, important person all of a sudden gets easily offended? And you ask yourself the question, if you're so important, why do you get so easily offended by what a kid did? Because I'm so important that you didn't recognize my importance. We become so self-consumed in ourselves that all of a sudden we don't realize that because of that we live a miserable life. For heaven's sake, as he continues, do not attempt to attain happiness through focusing on yourself. We must be happy, but the happiness must flow from a connection to the unconcealed truth of the soul. When the ego no longer conceals the soul, joy is automatic. To summarize, we have the two problems with the happiness of the natural soul. Number one, it doesn't satisfy the person. Totally. Why? Because the divine soul is being suffocated and is not getting any joy from it. Number two, it doesn't bring lasting happiness. Yes, it makes me happy right now, but then it says, I want more, and I want more, and I want more, and it doesn't allow the person to continue to be happy. So what do we have from here? The animal soul, the natural soul, is incapable of achieving lasting happiness and positive emotions. But fortunately for us, God gave us two souls, the natural soul and the divine soul. And we're going to try to focus on the divine soul and see the difference between the two souls and see why through the divine soul we will then be able to have a true happiness. So, yes? Am I, don't you think happiness is overrated? It depends what you define as happiness. That's what we're going to get to. So why don't we finish this, and then you'll tell me if it's the same definition of happiness that you think. 
So, yes, if happiness is a temporary pleasure, it's overrated. But if happiness is something that comes from the divine soul, it's definitely overrated. So it's all how you define happiness. And one of the problems, and I'll just I'll digress a second, just because you brought it up, and I think this helps us understand a little bit, the natural soul's definition of happiness is definitely overrated. The natural soul's definition of happiness is actually not happiness. It's the biggest impediment to happiness. And that's why you will find people who have everything materialistically that the natural soul desires and are not happy. Truly not happy. We have today, there was this interesting study I read. I I didn't mention it because, but an interesting study they did. They have found that children that come from lower sociological, socioeconomic environments and minorities are by 70% happier than white Caucasians from higher socioeconomic areas. They have found the amount of children that are medicated because of an anxiety and depression are higher in the more affluent areas than in the lower uh, economic areas. What we see over here is something very clearly, and this is data, proven data. The stress. Not only the stress of the parents that affects their children, but the bottom line that we have over here is happiness defined by materialism Mm -hmm. or happiness defined by the natural soul is the greatest impediment to happiness that one can imagine. If you want the exact numbers... Uh, I had it written down somewhere. Um, yeah. One of the first empirical studies to provide a glimpse was they took 10th graders of upper socioeconomic status, suburban counterparts. The sample included 264 suburban students who were mostly white Caucasians, white-collar families, and 224 inner-city youth who were predominantly minority and low uh, socioeconomic uh, status. Affluent youth reported significantly higher, doesn't give a number here, levels of anxiety across several domains of greater depression. They also reported significantly higher of substance use than inner city students consistently indicating more frequent use of cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, and other illicit drugs. Not only because they can afford it, but also because they weren't needed. They even go further. There was another study about depression. It's ten times higher. This is another thing, which today we're... Every single person today is living better than people lived in the 1960s, people in the 1960s. I'm talking about financially. Uh, living better than they were in the 1930s. Well, the Great Depression and so on. The financial status, the amount of qualifications that exist, um, they did... The, the rates of depression are 10 times higher today than they were in the 1960s. And the economy, compared to what the income, the average income that a person is making today to what they were making in the 1960s, is much higher, 52%. You know, when I started teaching, I made very little money. And my money went much further then than it did when I made much more money. Okay, so you're saying the amount per dollar. Okay. But the things you wanted back then 
when that is much oh, as what well, people want now. <laughs> no, people so back, back then were happy to have a house and a car. Okay, now you exactly need exactly my point. So the level of depression, right? So therefore, the amount of people that on depression medications and so on has jumped drastically because not because people don't have is because their definition of happiness, as you mentioned, is overrated, so to speak, is misdirected. And is a materialistic, is a natural soul happiness, which doesn't bring happiness. So let's go to what does bring happiness. And the good thing is that God gave us a divine soul. And because God gave us a divine soul, the difference between the, God, the physical soul, the natural soul, I should say, which seeks personal attainment versus the natural soul, uh, I'm sorry, versus the divine soul, which is God-focused. The entire concept of personal attainment, even in the loftiest spirit, loftiest level, is all from the natural soul. If all I am focused on is myself, I'll never be happy. But if I focus on something else, I will then have a level of happiness. And it's not ask what God can do for it, it's ask what it can do for God. And the ideal, as we're going to see, is described in this text right here. From the Tanya, text chapter 41, text number 6. When we study Torah and pray, we surrender our souls to God, meaning we elevate the spark of godliness within us to its source. Our intention in doing so should be solely for the sake of causing God gratification, the pleasure of God, of which of the pleasure we cause God can be compared to the joy that a king experiences when his only child who is in captivity or imprisoned is released and returns to him, as we discussed earlier. Every Jewish soul truly and authentically aspires to please God at all times by virtue of all natural love for God what we inherited from our ancestors. They say a story, just to illustrate this point, to get it, to drive the point home. This famous story about a chassid who was in the Siberian Gulag. And he was there with a bunch of his counterparts that were there. And he was imprisoned for promoting Jewish practices and beliefs and for assisting fellow Jews in studying Torah. And the chassid developed a certain kinship and friendliness with his fellow prison mates. And his fellow inmates, most of whom were professionals, intellectuals, because the communists arrested any person who may be, so to speak, a detriment to them. And they were also in prison, but they were all down and upset about the Soviet ideology, and because of that, they were imprisoned and so on. And they turned to the chassid and they asked the chassid, how do you have this continuous, upbeat demeanor? You're sitting in Siberia, you're here almost 10 years sitting with us. You're still always upbeat. What's the matter with you? Are you okay? And he looks at them and he says, You know what? You guys are all dejected and all upset and depressed because your incarceration does not allow you to be who you hope to be. You want to be a doctor. You want to be an engineer. You want to be a professor. And now you're incarcerated, so you're confined. You're not able to experience that. He says, I, my goal in life is to serve God. And that I can do here too. So why should I be upset? It all depends what your goals are. It's like the very famous story I say all the time about Reb Zusha and Rebbe Melech. We said this story once before. They would go around collecting money 
for poor people who were captured, imprisoned. And once they themselves were imprisoned, thrown into the dungeon by some nobleman. And they came time to Davim Mincha, and they saw that in the dungeon, there was a pile of, you know, the waste where the people used to, you know, that they had inside the dungeon. And if there's waste, they can't daven there. So Reb Zusha, Reb Limelech, turned to his brother, Reb Zusha, and says, what are we going to do? We can't daven. There's waste. What are we going to do? How are we going to daven? So Reb Zusha turns to his brother, Reb Limelech, and says, I don't understand. We should be happy that we can observe the commandment that we don't can't daven because since there's waste here. Serve God with joy because in any situation that I can't do it. So they started dancing. All of a sudden the guards asked the other inmates, what are these guys dancing about? So they're dancing because of the bucket of waste. So they threw the waste out. <laughs> when it comes from the divine soul, the divine soul's concept here is to serve God. Wherever you are, you can serve God. On the other hand, in the Nefesh Bahamas, the natural soul has plans in life. Has plans in emotion. You know, like the mother that was walking with her two children, they asked her, what are the kids? Oh, this is the doctor, that's the lawyer. It doesn't make a difference. From when the kids are a young kid, you're going to go to medical school, you're going to become a doctor, you'll be making a lot of money. And what happens if the kid doesn't go to medical school? Oy vey, all of a sudden the aggravation that you get and you can't sleep at night. Why? Because you decided that your kid has to go to medical school. <laughs> if you wouldn't have had that plan of what's going to be, you never would have had the aggravation. You never would have been depressed, never would have upset. So who causes the aggravation? The expectation that the natural soul decides. That means that happiness is the self-image projected of what I am going, I'll be happy if my child's a doctor. I'll be happy if my child's a lawyer. I'll be happy if my child makes over X amount of dollars. As a consequence, if it doesn't happen, all of a sudden I start saying, what did I do wrong? I start beating myself up. How terrible of a parent I am. So when we talk about happiness from the natural soul, it's constantly focused on the past, what it did, if it did wrong or right, or how it's going to do it, and on the future, what's going to be. That if I do this, then I'll get this. Like you mentioned, I got a college degree, so now I can make a living. And I can make a living, so I can have the money. I can have the money, so I can buy what I need. And I can give Sudoka. But with the concept of maybe all wonderful things. But again, that happiness is a self-centered happiness, which is not living the present. I'm not here in the moment. I'm not utilizing my time to enjoy <coughs> what I have right now. I'm not enjoying the children because I'm thinking about them going to medical school. Number two, as we mentioned, I'll never be satisfied. The kid went to medical school, became a doctor. Why only a doctor? You have to be a professional, a specialist. Why only a specialist in one field, a specialist in two fields? You know how much more you can make if you're a specialist and above a specialist and a fellowship and a specialist. We'll never be happy. Why? Because the natural soul, by definition, is never happy. Is never satisfied. In contrast to the divine soul, what's my focus? God. My focus is on God. It's right now. God's not the past. God's not the future. He is now the past, the present, and the future. It's the same. 
Number two, three, only if I'm connected to God am I capable of true happiness at any time, regardless of the situation. Because the ability to serve God doesn't make a difference where you are, doesn't make a difference how much you earn, doesn't make a difference of what you're doing. I always have that ability to serve God. And if serving God is what brings me true joy, because that's the true joy that brings God, uh, that the divine soul enjoys, that's the happiness of the divine soul, then that can happen wherever, whatever, and whenever. You know, I think there has to be middle ground. And I say that because don't we learn that we need to teach our children a trade? There's two. Okay, so let me interrupt you right there. When we talk about teaching a trade, it has nothing to do with happiness. No, it's survival. Correct. That means there's two things. That's th- what I say, happiness is overrated. So there are people that are surviving very well but are not happy. That's a different problem. But that's not, it's part of the same thing. Because I can teach my child the trade, and I'll, we'll talk about it even last week's parasha, I'd say. When Yaakov went to love him, and he was earning money, but what did he do before he left? He protected only his head. When we teach a child that he's, to, and taking your example, I have to teach my child the trade, that he has to work with his hands, but at the same time he has to serve God, that his head is, doesn't get influenced with. Meaning that just because he didn't make $100,000 or a million dollars, he can still be happy. Because the point of him working is because he's making a vessel to receive God's blessing. That if I don't have the, the, the concept, and that's why, as we mentioned before, I need a divi- the natural soul and the divine soul. In order to be happy, I need both. But what am I centered on? If I'm only going to center on the trade that I'm teaching my child, then I've lost the divine soul, and I'm suffocating it, and the child will never be happy because that trade, they'll look at you and say, but why did you only teach me that trade? Why didn't you pay for me to go to medical school? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But that's not what happened. That's when you also feel happy. But we'll get to that. So what we see over here is that the divine soul doesn't have an inherent happiness. That the, I'm sorry, doesn't have the inherent inhibitors of happiness like the natural soul is. But what exactly is the divine soul happy about? What is so happy? Is it God? I say God's name a bunch of times. What are we getting when we're focusing on God? Where does our joy come from? So we mentioned our joy. We mentioned the phrase before. Our joy comes from doing a mitzvah. When we do the mitzvah, that means that God tasked us with a plan. And therefore we get joy from it. But why? And over here, we take it a step further. As we mentioned many times, God created this world because He wants a a sanctified place, a special place, a holy place for Him in this world. Who would He give the job to make this world a holy place? Us. Anytime I do a mitzvah, what is actually happening is I am fulfilling part of God's cosmic plan. So our happiness that the divine soul has when doing the mitzvah or doing God or focusing on God is focusing on the knowledge that our efforts that we do here in this world make God happy. Or that God allowed us to join this cosmic plan in making God happy. Let's see it in text number 7. The meaning of the verse 
Let Israel rejoice with the Maker, is that whoever is of the Jewish stock ought to rejoice in God's own joy, for he rejoices and is happy to dwell in the lowest realm. God created the material world. He wanted to dwell in the material world. And then he told us that we make that material world a place where God feels comfortable. Then he told us that we are the ones that make this world, make God's oasis. We get to build God's home in this world every time we do a mitzvah. And when we do so, God rejoices. So if I know that God rejoices, what does that give me? Joy. Joy. True joy. Ultimate joy. Joy that's everlasting. Joy that's always there. The very knowledge that we have brought God joy, our happiness now comes from shedding our ego, not because of our ego. Our happiness becomes because we focus on our mission-oriented, not on me-oriented. The mission, my joy comes, I now have the ability to focus on God instead of focusing on myself. Anybody ever make a blessing for anything, not besides food, for any mitzvah? Mm-hmm. What is yeah. the blessing that we make on a mitzvah? Baruch atah Hashem alukeinu malach olam asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivana. What do those words mean? You make it when you make a blessing, when you light Shabbos candles, by matzah, lulav, any mitzvah we do. Asher kiddishanu, asher, that, kiddishanu sanctified us. Do you ever notice when, they, when you got married, some of you was a long time ago, some of you have heard the other people say it, when, a ma- when the groom puts the ring on the woman's hand, on the bride's home, or ha- ring finger, what does he say? A very similar word. What is the similarity? You're fulfilling a mitzvah. The act of betrothal. What are you saying? Let's see it inside. Text number 8. What's the connection? Page 196. The phrase, who has sanctified us with commandments, implies that our bond with God is like a man who betrothed a woman so that she may be united with them in a perfect bond as it is written and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Exactly so, to an infinitely greater degree, is our divine soul, along with our natural soul and its faculties, united with God, infinite light, when we engage in the Torah and the study of mitzvahs. For that reason, Solomon, the Song of Songs, compares our union with God like the union of a groom and the bride, in all its particulars, with attachment, desire, pleasure, embracing, and kissing. King Solomon in the Song of Songs, you read it, it's like a love story. Not only a romantic love story, but a very graphic romantic love story. And all that love story, what King Solomon is saying is, that you know that any time you do a mitzvah, what you're in essence doing is, you are kiddishanu, you are marrying God, you are embracing God, you are taking God and making that relationship. That's why you say the words kiddishanu, sanctify. doesn't only mean to sanctify, but also means to betroth. The Torah and mitzvahs are the wedding ring which we are married to God. And every time we do a mitzvah, we take a moment to say, to relish that experience. And we bless and thank God that we have this special relationship with God. Ever thought about that? 
We're so common that we make the blessing, we never think about what we're saying. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is anytime you light Shabbat candles, anytime you put on tefillin, what you're saying is, I love you. Mm-hmm. And what's the greatest pleasure for a spouse is to make the other spouse happy. And exactly what we're doing when we make a mitzvah, we are making our spouse, God, happy. What kind of better joy can you have than that? So the ultimate joy, the ultimate happiness is making God in heaven happy by doing a mitzvah. So if we want real happiness, real joy, the true definition of happiness is when we do a mitzvah. Next week, as we mentioned, we'll talk about how to bring it into practicality. But while we're still talking in theory, I know everything I just said sounds great, at least for me. (laughs) But, and it's easy to speak about and preach about losing the ego and only do it for an ultra-realistic cause. And it's, I used to say, well, this guy sounds naive, whoever does things for that way. The end of the day is we all have a natural soul. And at the end of the day is that our natural soul is what comes natural to us, not only to you, but to me as well. And I have the same challenge. I'm not a saint. I have a natural soul too. I haven't killed my natural soul. I'm not even a Bainani, right? <laughs> so, the natural soul, the versus the divine soul. And the natural soul is self-centered. The natural soul is not only self-centered, but that's the default human state. That means when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to be really happy. My natural soul says, just give me a temporary pleasure that will make me happy. The natural state of things from birth, my disposition was, my evil inclination, my natural soul was there before my godly soul. And therefore, for me to focus on the divine soul seemingly looks like something unnatural. Right? Because the divine soul is something which that's not what I'm used to. That's not what I'm accustomed to. That's not what pulls me towards. It needs extra benefit. But what happens when you face a problem? What do you do? Huh? You know the story about the guy that was looking for his glasses? Pray for guidance. Okay. But you know about the guy that was looking for his glasses? So he asks his wife, where'd you lose them? His wife asks him, I'm sorry. Where'd you lose them? So he says, ah, I lost it in the other room. So she says, so why are you looking for it over here? He says, because the light's on here. <laughs> oh boy. But despite the difficulty of what it may be, because one's the default human state, one's the unnatural, so you can pray to God, that's all, that helps. But what about what do you have to do? We know that praying is not enough, we've got to do something. So you've got to try. But we know when we try doing something, and if you do the same thing again, and it's not working, you say, keep on trying. Like in text number 9, this is a very famous poem that expresses this concept. This is a lesson you should heed. Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. What do they say? What's the, uh, what do you call a... Um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? But that's only if you know the same thinking is going to get you the same results. But what about adopting a new way of thinking? A new paradigm. 
putting a new way of looking at it. If you're always going to be focusing on your natural soul, yes, it's not going to work. But now that you have a new idea, you want to be able to change that idea. We don't want to throw good after bad because we know it's not going to work. So once again, we need to look at the change the paradigm. Change the way we look at it. And ultimately, we can then have a better view and work through it. So like we did for the past four weeks, we had a rationale which was difficult an area for us to, to go about it, whether it was from inauthenticity to shame to guilt and anxiety. Today we look at happiness. Happiness seemingly its <coughs> unnatural state. The natural state of things is that I should be selfish, materialistic, look for a temporary happiness, but it doesn't work. So how do I go about it? The rationale is happiness is not contingent on personal attainment. It's by choosing God. When I change my paradigm, when I change the way I look at it, all of a sudden, now, I have a better chance of attaining happiness. But the fact remains that shedding the ego is not an easy task. Being selfless and not selfish is not easy. And if we are even honest enough, (coughs) shedding one's ego, God bless you. And if we're honest enough, we can say that maybe it's impossible. Even though it's going to make me happy, but how am I going to get there? And if we feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the task, maybe we just find another way. But as we discussed in the last few weeks, we know that when talking about the divine soul, it's not all or nothing. It doesn't mean that just because I can't reach 100%, I shouldn't even do 10%. That means if I can focus on my divine soul for a true joy and true happiness, even for a moment, even just for a little bit, try just for 10% of the day, 20% of the day, 5%, 2%, whatever it is. We can place our goal marker by the first step. And try to get it a little bit higher in every single day to eliminate our ego a little bit more. And if we're mission-minded from the moment that we start, anybody ever make like a checklist, a mission statement mm-hmm. of what you want to accomplish? Even of simple goals. And you highlight what you've done, what you haven't. Even if you haven't done the whole list, but you checked off two things on your list that you did, do you feel satisfaction? <laughs> yes, you do. You don't have to check off all of them, but even if I got through two, you're already pumping your fist and saying, look how great I am. <laughs> the same idea is also when it comes to happiness and following our divine soul. Even if we got 20% of our mission, as long as we started the mission, we can already start feeling some true joy and happiness. The second point is, that we can start the journey even if we're not ready. What does this mean? You may say, what does it mean? If I'm not ready, how can I start the journey? So let me take you back to an episode that you may be all well familiar with. Anybody remember Egypt? Our ancestors left Egypt. Look at the words that the Torah tells us in the book of Exodus, text number 10. Pharaoh was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his servants experienced a change of heart regarding the people they exclaimed, What have we done? Why have we released them from serving us? So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, took his people with him, and he chased after the children of Israel. What was that word that Pharaoh said? 
The Jewish people fled. What does it mean they fled? Anybody know? Define the word fled. Yeah, ran away. Ran away. Yeah. What do you mean they ran away? Does anybody not remember that Pharaoh came in the middle of the night telling him leave? <laughs> Does anybody not remember that in the middle of the day the Jewish people left the middle of broad daylight? What do you mean they fled? Pharaoh wanted them out as quickly as possible. It means that they hurried just in case he changed his mind. Ah, they hurried just in case he changed his mind. So why is Pharaoh saying they fled? Why is Pharaoh saying, Oh, you made they ran away. Hello, you told them to leave. He doesn't want to blame himself. He said he was told. He didn't say Pharaoh said it. Yeah, well, he harnessed his horse and he was pretty quick that he ran out after them. So what happened? What was the change? What was sudden change of hearts? So the answer is that Pharaoh was misled. What was, why was he misled? Moses came to him. Did Moses say, We're not coming back? No, Moses came to him and said, We only want to go into the desert for three days. Three days passes, Pharaoh sees the Jewish people aren't here. What does he say? They fled. They ran away. They're not coming back. Now let me ask you. After all the ten plagues, after all the miracles that happened, then Moses couldn't tell them the truth We're not coming back. I understand in the beginning of the plagues, before Pharaoh saw the greatness of God, you needed to bend, you know, a bargaining tool. Why couldn't Moses tell him clearly, listen here, Pharaoh, you're letting us go, we're not coming back. Why tell him the three days? The time asks the question, text 11a. This seems puzzling. Why this manipulation necessary? If they would have simply told Pharaoh to set them free permanently, would he not have been compelled to let them go regardless? No. no. Why not? The ten plagues happened. He didn't. Uh, when he let them go, Pharaoh didn't say leave and come back in three days. He, he said we're going to take our women and children, goats, sheep, everything. There was no prerequisites. Only Moses made the prerequisite. Why the trickery? But didn't uh, maybe I'm wrong? But didn't Moses wanted wanted them said initially, let us go for the you know all of them. But then after the plagues, Pharaoh just said, get out. Right, but why Moses? Well, but why was Moses insistent in saying then three days? Yeah, to prevent was... an argument. Moses wanted to argument lead to bloodshed. But, but well, Moses didn't want them to just get out. But, it, but initially, I mean, I think by the end, it wasn't, Moses wasn't lying to him. But he then, just wanted them to get out and leave. For but then Pharaoh, then, so then why did Pharaoh come back and get them? Oh, let's find out. Text number 11b, the Tanya answers the question. At the time the Jewish nation still harbored their hearts, the full force of the natural souls untamed the ego. For their natural impurity did not disappear until the giving of the Torah. Nevertheless, their striving and desire was to set their divine souls free from exile from the forces of evil, which was represented by the Egyptian impurity and attached to God. As if, it, as if to say, as it is to say that God is my strength, my fortress, my refuge, one on day of distress. The Alter Rebbe is saying over here is as follows, that everything that happens in the physical plane is a reflection of what's happening above. The exodus of Egypt was more than just a physical event. The exodus of Egypt was the Jewish people breaking through the phys- not only the physical servitude, but also the spiritual servitude to Pharaoh in a more deeper and spiritual phenomenon. Ancient Egypt 
as our sages tell us, was a decadent place, a pleasure-seeking place, a morally depraved society. It represented the natural soul in its lowest form. The Jews needed to get out of Egypt. But until they would get to Egypt, I'm sorry, until they would get to Mount Sinai, it would only be 49 days later. They needed to move to a place of more holiness, out of Egypt. The problem was, the Jews weren't ready for that. The problem was, the Jews, you could take them out of Egypt. But Egypt wasn't that taken out of them. Spiritually speaking, at the time the Jews left Egypt, when they crossed the sea even, the angels were saying, these are idolaters and these are idolaters. There was almost no difference between the Jews and the Egyptians. It's only because God chose us. So what happened now? All of a sudden, Moses couldn't tell Pharaoh, guess what? We're free. That's it. All done and over. Why? Because they're really not free. Even when I take them out of Egypt, they're still going to be in Egypt. Until they get to Mount Sinai, they're still going to be in the shackles of Egypt. That's why they fled. Meaning, that's why Moses had to tell Pharaoh only three days. Because even after three days, they'll still be in Egypt. They really didn't leave Egypt until they got to Mount Sinai. So he technically didn't lie. He said what the reality was. Physically, they left. Physically, I'm talking about in a spiritual plea. Spiritually, they were still engrossed. Now look, while the the crossing of the sea was seven days later, and they were still, the angels still said they're the same. It took 49 days for the Jewish people to be able to realize that they are ready for Mount Sinai to prepare them. But guess what? Let me ask you something. Every single day, we say the prayer of the Jewish people leaving Egypt. Every single day in our prayers, in the Kiddush, and on Shabbat, we celebrate Passover. Why do we celebrate if they never left Egypt? Because it was their first step. Because even though they weren't ready, the very fact that they were mission-oriented, the very fact that they were ready to go, and they left Egypt, even while they were battling Egypt, so to speak. That was already considered a celebration. The same is also with ourselves. Our life, our lives, is a series of small temporary escapes, small little exoduses, leaving Egypt. And sometimes we don't got it all to give it all. Sometimes you don't have the ability to leave the exodus altogether. But even if we get a small exodus, it's a reason to celebrate. Even if we make it a little bit out of our stuck being in ourselves, we've become a little bit selfless. You've got a reason to celebrate. There's a joy that comes from it. Which gives us, just to recap what we have over here, is our question was, being that it feels so difficult and the enormity, how do we get over it? So what we have is over here, we talk about the Egypt. There's the natural soul lifestyle. And then we have the escape. That moving to a higher spiritual state, even when we're not ready. But even though you might say, well, is it too difficult? So as we mentioned, two points. Number one, it's not an all or nothing, even if we go baby steps. And number two, the moment we begin the journey, 
even if we're not ready, start the journey. The Jewish people left Egypt, though they may have not been ready for Mount Sinai, but they left Egypt. Don't get stuck in Egypt. Yes? Okay. <laughs> the bottom line is that we see from here is don't get stuck in Egypt. You say, well, I don't know if I'll make it to Mount Sinai. Get out of Egypt. That in itself is a reason to celebrate. Okay. Yeah, now, okay. Didn't, I mean, wasn't Israel at its lowest spiritual point at that moment? Correct. So then, Hashem used his strong hand to bring them out. Correct. Wasn't that Israel took a leap of faith and said they were pushed? True. So you're saying it wasn't self-motivated, it was from above. Well, yeah. That's what somebody mentioned before, pray. Sometimes what we need when we're feeling down in the dumps and we feel that there's no rescue and there's no respite is we pray that God should schlep us out of it. Um, As in when it's beyond your power. It's never beyond your power. If God puts you in a predicament, that means it's not beyond your power. The question is only how you attain the power. So then, Sometimes it's a miraculous event. And sometimes it's a natural event. And sometimes we have a miraculous event. You know about the story about the guy that with the flood, and the ambulance comes to help him, and then the helicopter and the fire, and then and then he comes up. Oh, and God. There's God. Why didn't you help me? He says, "Well, I sent you a helicopter, I sent you an ambulance." Sometimes we have events that are happening in front of our eyes, pulling us out of Egypt, and we just tend to ignore them because we say, eh, "I'll get the next ride." I'm enjoying life too much. Well, I'm enjoying Egypt. In fact, there were Jews who didn't leave Egypt. Do you know that a third of the Jewish people didn't leave Egypt? Really? Because they said, we're enjoying life here, and they were killed in Egypt, together with the Egyptians. They were enjoying life? How are they enjoying life? Because they were afraid of what was going Well, people are slaves today to their environment, to their society, and they're enjoying it. They were afraid of the unknown. A level of enjoyment. They don't know anything else that that's right. called enjoying. They were afraid of the unknown. So what we have from here is from our discussion today is that leveraging our divine soul is the key to positive emotions and happiness. The animal soul, the divine soul, is only but a nasty impediment to happiness and a source of stress and anxiety. And the question that somebody may ask is, why do we bother? Why do we even have this negative soul? Why do we even have the divine soul? I'm sorry, the natural soul, if all it does, get in the way. Just get rid of it. That means if I resolve, let's think of it this way, and I'll phrase it this way, if I resolve to take the paradigm shift and focus on my divine soul only, then what use is my natural soul? Maybe I should just discard the natural soul, the very existence of the natural soul What's the purpose of it? And perhaps the natural soul is a tool that can help us bring to greater joy. Meaning that if we leverage the natural soul correctly, we can use the natural soul to bring us to a higher level in the divine soul. How do you do this? Text number 12. It's a little bit of a long one, so... Bear with me. To gain a power, a dose of consolation, we should take to heart and tell ourselves. 
It is undoubtedly true I am extremely distant from God, I'm loathsome, I'm repulsive, and so on, due to my naturally low spiritual stature. But that is only my body, and is attached to my natural soul. Despite all that, there also exists in me a part of God, for even the most worthless habit, divine soul, which harbors a spark of actual godliness that gives it life. Unfortunately, however, it languishes in a state of exile. In that case, I should shift my focus from feeling crushed by lowly spiritual stature. To the contrary, the more that I am distant from God and consider myself despicable or repulsive as a result, the more intensely is my divine soul mired in exile within me. How tremendously is she so pitied. I will therefore throw my every effort and determination to extracting her and lifting her out of exile to restore her to her father's house as a new earth, meaning to restore her to a state that she enjoyed. Before she was installed within my body, back then she was absorbed in God's blessed light and was completely united with it. That is exactly what will happen now, as well because I will invest all my efforts and all my faculties of my natural soul into the Torah and mitzvahs, and especially in prayer, during which time I will allow expression to my divine soul to cry it over the distress. What's the Alter Rebbe saying until now? You might say, well, the natural soul, it's an impediment on my godly soul doing what it's supposed to. Let me get rid of the natural soul, let me beat it up, get rid of it, and only have divine soul. Dr. Rebbe says no. Use that natural soul. Feed it with Torah. Utilize it to do the mitzvahs. And then you'll be able to uplift the natural soul together with the divine soul. As he continues. With this approach, we serve God with tremendous joy throughout our lives, rejoicing with our divine soul as it repeatedly rescued from the loathsome body and it restored to our father's home in a pristine youth each time we engage in the Torah study and service of God. There is no greater joy than being rescued from exile and captivity. It has been compared to the tremendous joy in the prince who languished in captivity, where he was once forced to labor the grinding of a millstone in prison while wallowing in repulsive filth, and he is then set free and returned to the palace of his father, the king. Our body will remain in its repulsive and loathsome state. Indeed, the Zohar refers to the corporal body as a serpent's skin, because the core essence of our natural soul will not have been converted to good nor merged into holiness. Nevertheless, our soul will be far more precious to us than our despised body, and will therefore share in the joy that will not allow the misery of our body to disturb and confuse the joy of our soul. What the Alter Rebbe tells us over here is an interesting way of looking at it. It's not only that you use your body to help you do the mitzvah, but even in a different way. If you look at your body and say your body is, a cap, is holding your soul captive, but every time then you express and utilize the expression of the divine soul, what happens then? Imagine somebody comes out of prison, what the joy is. So instead of negating the body completely, Look at the contrast of the soul to the body. You then gain appreciation of the soul when it reaches a height, even if it's only minute. That means if you look at them unequal, then of course you'll never have that appreciation. Because, okay, I'll get my natural soul happiness and my divine soul happiness. But if I look at the natural soul as an impediment, I look at the natural soul as captive of the spiritual soul, and that any time I actually 
utilize and get the divine soul active, I'm on a higher state, or I feel much better, because it's actually changing the entire circumstance, going from 0 to 10 instead of from 9 to 10. So, let's go back and ask ourselves the same question. Now that I know what happiness is, with my newly understood level of what happiness is, I will be happier because I will do what? I will become happier. And at first we asked, I'll be happier. Somebody said they want to go to Israel. They want to um, have more fun. What was the other one? So I'll be happier now if I do what? More mitzvot. More mitzvot. What else? Connect to God. So I'm more happier now if I design, align myself with the divine soul. <clears throat> so here's a thought about happiness. They want to know defining happiness. The importance of happiness and positive emotions to link to our collective liberation. King David says, we say this before we bench on Shabbat, Shir HaMailis B'Shuv Hashem, a song of a sense, when God will return the exiles of Zion, we will have, we'll be like dreamers. Then our mouth will be filled with laughter and our tongue with great joy. Then we will say among the nations, God has done great things for the people. God has done great things for us. We were joyful. So one way to read the last line over here of this is what's the notion? God has done great things for us, and therefore we were joyful. But there's another way how to read it, which is God has done great things for us. Why did God do great things for us? Because we were joyful. Happiness is not only a result of something, but happiness is a cause for something. The coming of Mashiach talks about the actual liberation of the Jewish people, the liberation of the world, bringing an an utopia, an era of peace, tranquility, absolute happiness. What brings about the happiness? Every time we escape the confining mindset of the natural soul, and we are truly happy because of our relationship we have with God, we are not only feeling happy at the time, but we are bringing liberation to the world, and will this collectively bring the entire liberation to the world due to the joy that we have. In the words of the Rebbe, Yidin, Zait Besimcha, Vedkumen Moshiach. Jews, be happy, this will bring Moshiach. So if we want to bring Moshiach, if we want to change the collective happiness in the world, is by changing our happiness, our model of what we call happiness to be able to bring it to be able to bring about true happiness Amen The many individuals liberations form form a collective global liberation Here's a quick Lesson 5 Living Joyfully 1. Our natural soul self-centered perspective is inconducive to positive emotions and happiness for two reasons A. Self-centeredness smothers our divine soul and its calling. However, our divine soul is a critical and defining element of our deepest selves. If we deny ourselves complete self-expression, we will find it impossible to experience real happiness. B. A self-oriented mindset focuses on ourselves and our own desires. This leaves us perpetually unsatisfied. We never have enough 
and constantly crave more. Two, happiness is a direct function of the divine soul and the consequence of a life aligned with its perspective for two reasons. A. The divine soul has no self-interest. It is entirely devoted to its divine mission. Therefore, it does not have grandiose plans or desires that it needs fulfilled before experiencing happiness. It is fully satisfied with embracing each moment and circumstance because the ability to serve always exists. B. If we live a divine soul lifestyle, God's happiness is the source of our happiness. Our joy flows from the knowledge that our efforts make God happy. Three, living a divine soul life is challenging because the natural soul is the default human state. Whereas the divine soul attitude is unnatural. The only alternative, however, is to continue pursuing happiness via the natural soul approach, which has been consistently proven to fail. Four, if we feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the spectrum of living a divine soul life, we should recall that we do not have to feel ready in order to embark on the journey. A truth illustrated by our ancestors' escape from Egypt. Okay, <clears throat> so next week is the final class and how we're going to bring this all into practicality. Refreshing relationships, remodeling our approach to love and relationships. It's not only relationships between one and another, between us and God. Also, next week, um, Tuesday night, is also a very special day in the Chabad calendar. It's Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, which is Rosh Hashanah. You didn't know Rosh Hashanah is in December, but now you do. It's the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidism. So we'll have um, extra refreshments and we'll be a little more of a Hasidic gathering. Not only so you can bring your friends, and, uh, because we're going to be learning the Tanya, which is all 